0: Welcome to That One Show with Brian Cones. I am joined by Sean Clemens, and he and I will be ranking our 10 favorite 1980s rock and roll albums over the next hour or so. He does have a podcast that I really enjoy. Uh, I'm going to let him introduce himself real quick and tell you all where you can find his podcast, because it's about music, and if you listen to this one, that one show, you obviously love music, and I think you'll like his podcast as well if you've not already listened to it. Yeah, as uh,
1: Brian said, my name's Sean Clemens. Uh, I got a podcast right now. It's kind of a Spotify exclusive uh, called Chase That Song. Uh, right now, I'm trying to wrap up going through a few different albums, and then I'm eventually going to switch over to highlighting a bunch of different songs and themes similar to brian's podcast but really doing deep dives into singular songs
0: yep and you've got you've got a few episodes up about the individuals that make up the trio and some of their albums and that album itself uh that i highly recommend if nobody's listening to those check i i I recommend y'all check those out i really enjoyed those
1: yeah i got a emmy lou harris episode coming up soon and then i'm going to finish off with the trio album yep and then get into the, diving into the songs,
0: so. So, you and I have been planning this one for, it seems like, months, and we finally have made it work here, and this is one I've really, really been excited for. Now, we're going to be ranking our 10 favorite rock albums of the 1980s. So, we kind of went back and forth, you and I did, Sean, on, well, what do we consider rock, but we're pretty loose with that term. I mean, if it's straight-up country, obviously, we're not going to include it. But I mean, traditional rock, uh, heavy metal, just about anything that could possibly remotely be considered rock and roll. We've included, you know, they're eligible here for the 10 albums that we're choosing. And I'm really excited for us to talk about these albums over the, over the next little while. Uh, Speaking in general, I think the 1980s, when you get to the good stuff has some great, great albums. Now, that being saying, the highs are really high, but in my opinion, the lows of the 1980s are really low as well. <laughs> uh, yeah, you no, know, that's true. I, and there's some really good stuff coming out of the 80s, and it seems like there's not a lot of just okay albums. It seems like it was a Stone Cold all-time classic or one that you just wouldn't even, if the CD wouldn't even be fit to use as a coaster. It was so bad. <laughs> but uh <laughs> i usually let my guests go first man with the exception of the number one song but we'll we'll get to that one a lot later here you want to go ahead and kick us off with your 10th favorite rock album of the 1980s and uh tell us what it is and why you chose it
1: yeah so uh at number 10 i got an album from 1987 which i would consider to be a year of pretty much like a classic rock revival you know even though you had a lot of hair metal ruling the charts and that album is electric by the cult
0: mm-hmm. so you know in
1: 1987 you had appetite for destruction came oh, out lot yeah. Permanent vacation came out in august well electric really like kicked off this whole revival by coming out in april of that year um uh, the bands you know they were usually more of like a goth rock post-punk type band especially with their previous album, Love, that came out in 85 and had hits like Rain and She Sells Sanctuary. Um, But, I mean, with this album, it's kind of an interesting story, really, um, because they started out, they were cutting an album, they called it Peace, and it was very much in that goth rock, post-punk vein. But they actually hated it. Like, they hated the and everything and i think ian asbury and a couple of their members of the band they were just like you know we got to find something different and so at the time an up-and-coming producer who you may know from producing several great albums throughout the years and honestly one of my all-time favorite albums licensed to ill by the beastie boys you had rick rubin He,
0: he may be the greatest producer ever
1: he may uh, be. He's out there for sure.
0: Yeah, I mean, he produced a lot of later uh, the American recordings that Johnny Cash did towards the end of his career. Uh, yep. Uh, he uh, and he's done a lot of Avent Brothers albums that I really like too. But so he's not just like rock and roll and heavy metal. He's done folk, country, you name it, man. But yeah, yeah. Continue on. I didn't mean to interrupt you.
1: Oh no, you're good. Yeah. I
0: and mean, you know, so
1: you know, watching a lot of different documentaries and stuff on Rick Rubin, and even reading an article about the production of electric you know rick rubin even though he has very eclectic taste he's probably one of the biggest AC/DC fans you will find and he actually used acdc as a blueprint for this album electric and so with that he kind of just toyed with everything had them had the cult re- like re-record a bunch of different songs and riffs drum parts you name it and we ended up getting like a hard rock and blues rock masterpiece out of this.
0: Good deal. I'm, I'd venture to say this is one of the earlier albums he produced. I know he had produced the beasties already prior to 87. Right. right. Uh, and like you said, at this time he was up and coming, but he's still, you know, all the way until today, he has his own recording studio in Malibu called Shangri-La. It has two recording studios, one that's the traditional type in his house. Another one's literally an old school bus that, that sits on the property. I didn't know uh, that. Yeah, you mentioned, you know, documentaries and biographies and stuff on him. There's a there's a documentary on the Avent Brothers called May It Last, and he's featured prominently in that because there's, it's about a recording of one of their albums, and he's producing it, and it, you get a really uh, inside look at his recording studio. And I'm glad you picked this album because to be honest with you, man, the Cult is not someone I'm super, super familiar with, just casual. I mean, I could probably name you just a few of their songs. And this is an album I'm definitely going to check out. Uh, if, if you know, probably the next time I work out, it sounds like it'd be a, a really good album from the way you described it to, to crank on while you're out on a run or cycling or whatever.
1: I will leave you with a warning and it may just because I am kind of biased towards the cult. There's a cover of born to be wild by Steppenwolf on there that a lot of people
0: are not fans of. So I, I enjoy a cover and I really an, enjoy a cover that, that, that tries to do something different other than the original It's not just basically karaoke. So yeah, I right. mean, I'm, I, uh, I'm pretty forgiving when it comes to a cover song, but yeah, I'm definitely going to check this out, man. Great, great way to start out the list. Uh, and like you said, come out in a strong year. I mean, you named a couple other albums that we may or may not talk about tonight that came out right around this time. So eighty-seven was definitely, definitely a good year for rock and roll. Uh, so my number ten is one that 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 made people get up in arms about that and want to argue with me. That's uh, not technically rock and roll, but I argue that it is, and it's from uh, nineteen eighty-three a debut album by Cindy Lauper called She's So Unusual. Now, wow. I'm a little bit older than you and I was, uh, you know, I I I was alive during the heyday of the 1980s. Uh and I remember when MTV first came around, she was one of the early early stars of the or the early music video era. And she this particular album, man, uh was nominated for six Grammys, one two, had uh four top five billboard singles on it all through the night. She bought time after time and obviously her most well-known song, Girls Just Wanna Have Fun. And the thing is she crossed over not just in from you know being a star in music, but pop culture as a whole. Uh wrestling has probably never been bigger than it was in the mid 80s uh Wrestlemania's you had like 90,000 people out at them uh and she was featured prominently uh in Wrestlemania 2 when uh Hawk <laughs> Hogan and uh Mr. T took on Rowdy Roddy Piper and uh Paul Orndorff she was actually in Hogan and them's corner and her feud with Rowdy Piper actually set all that up they ca- they crossed over and got on the MTV and they're what well, I'm Getting at here is there's no way I can convey to someone who didn't grow up in the 80s on how big a star she was, probably from about 1983 when this album came out to the late 80s. Um at one time you had people arguing who was the bigger female star, either her or Madonna, and it was a legitimate argument for a while. Are you familiar with Cindy Lauper at all outside of you know (laughs) just what gets played on the radio? I say
1: outside of those songs, yeah, there's actually, um, I keep going back to this one live album all the time, and it's the uh, Roger, Walter, Roger Waters, The Wall, live in Berlin, where he had, like, the Scorpions there, he had the band there, he had Van Morrison, and he had Cindy Lauper come out and do
0: another Brick in the Wall with him. And awesome,
1: awesome. It is a rendition.
0: Yeah, she can sing, man. I know she was, she dressed real funky, was her own thing. A lot of people remember because of that, but uh, you know, a song that's not on this, but it's on the follow-up, which to me is one of the greatest female vocal performances ever is true colors. And oh, she does it, And it's been covered by a million people, man. But yeah, uh, th- this album was legit. Dude. Yeah. Uh, and I would be remiss if I didn't, you know, I, I, grew up on, this is one of the albums I grew up on. Uh, but several more will be mentioned later, but I, I couldn't leave this off my list, man. I just couldn't do it. I don't blame you. So, what, what do you have for us at number nine, Sean?
1: All right. Number nine, we're going to get a little bit heavier here. I got one from 1980. It's British Steel by Judas Priest. Cool. Good pick. But with the album, they actually, you know, I'm, I'm probably going to end up talking about ACDC a lot here. You know, don't mind me. I'm just grew up with ACDC. So, this is like a I got you. little bit of a bias. So, with this, they actually um, were on tour with ACDC on the Highway to Hell tour. And they took a lot of inspiration from the band on that tour and applied it to the British Steel album. Good deal, and man. With that, you actually got a lot of songs that, you know, when you compare it to the rest of their catalog, this is a very good entry to metal for mm-hmm. hard Because there's songs like Living After Midnight Oh, yeah. Grinder and United that are more of like rock anthems and they are straight up heavy metal. But then you get other songs on there like Rapid Fire and Breaking the Law that are more in your face metal. So it was a good transition for people. And another thing that was cool that I found out when I was looking into this was how they got the sound effects and everything in their songs. You know, I didn't realize and, you know, thinking back, it doesn't make sense. There wasn't really digital sampling and everything so uh, all the sound effects that they had they actually recorded in the studio so like breaking bottles and using pull cues and smashing them on trays to get sounds of like thunder crashing it's pretty cool pretty cool stuff
0: have you ever uh, am i crazy or did they play like in corbin
1: a few months back they actually did i think they had queen track with them
0: yeah yeah i mean corbin i mean that's that's great <laughs> i mean judas priest in corbin kentucky it's cr- yeah, like kind of crazy look at that dog out there too so. <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah, snoop Dogg's played there man and corbin's getting some good shows so i've never been one to one there but yeah this is a great pick man uh another one that i necess- not necessarily would be in my top 10 but you know if i did my top 50 definitely be on there uh probably my favorite album with judas priest I don't know uh is it your favorite of theirs or it's definitely my favorite of theirs yeah i, mean, I think it's definitely their strongest strongest effort to, at least the ones i've listened to and uh uh rob Hatford, the, the lead singer i'm probably butchering his name uh but he's got a, a new autobiography out that came out last year that i'm that's on my stack of books to hopefully get to this year Um huge sucker for biographies of musicians especially autobiographies uh and i'm i'm really really glad that you mentioned you know the sound effects you know today they could just press a button on a on a you know a, a tablet or you know a laptop and get any sound effect they wanted but those dudes were in the studio breaking beer bottles and smashing pool cues man for uh just just to get you know those couple snippets of uh, of a sound effect on those songs that's pretty cool It is awesome. So my number nine is a band that's from uh, England, similar to Judas Priest, but probably don't (laughs) sound anything like them. Uh, And they're my daughter's favorite band. And to be honest, I have her to thank for this album even being on the list because it's a band that I never really listened to until she got into them on her own over the last couple of years. And I have found myself to really, really like them especially this album it's a band called the smiths this album is from 1986 it's called the queen is dead now the smiths were made up of morrissey and johnny marr on guitar andy roark on bass and mike joyce on drums a lot of critics probably consider this to be their their peak uh their best album and I, i would have to agree uh it's it's really like a emo before emo was in i Is it's the best way i can describe it for somebody's maybe never listened to it uh a lot of songs for sad people on here morrissey is not the most joyful and happy fellow in the world even even still today uh the title track uh is a really good uh uh song on there my favorite song from this album is probably cemetery gates or maybe big mouth strikes again and I don't know how familiar you are with the Smiths, and like I said, I I'm almost ashamed to admit that I I really never give them a passing thought, even though I love all types of music. Up until my daughter started listening to them, so you know, to, just just to try to connect with her, I I made me I had her make up a playlist. We share an iTunes account, and I dove into it. And I really like the Smiths, man, so much so that you know, had we recorded this, you know, eighteen months ago, they'd be nowhere near my top ten. Here they are solidly at number nine, man.
1: All right. Yeah. I mean, with the Smiths, I've always been just very casual, more or less. Just, you know, really the only song I can name you the title of is How Soon Is Now. So that's, oh, yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. Because I I do really enjoy Johnny Mars guitar playing. He's,
0: yes, he's (laughs) done. And and him and Morrissey both have had their first era of success after the Smiths broke up as solo artists. (laughs) Uh, I'm a really big fan of Johnny Marr. I had a band called Johnny Marr and the Healers for a yes. while there. They've they've got some good songs. Uh, but yeah, man. I'm, like I said, I have my teenage daughter to thank for introducing me to the Smiths. <laughs> <laughs> so, Sean, let's. Uh, before I forget, I want to add a caveat. There's there's three albums that would have been on my list today and aren't. I'll be honest with you, The Clash is London Calling may have been number one, but it was released in January of 80 here in the States, but it was released in 79 in England, man. So I just – I mean, feel free to later on rank that if you want, but for my own purposes, I just couldn't count it since it technically came out in the 70s. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like right at the end of the 70s,
1: I was just like – yeah. all-time classics, but I can't include them. Like I had – I was going to put Pink Floyd's The Wall cuz that's yeah. like one of my all-time
0: favorites and then The Cars debut album but they both 1979. I know, man. The Car that Cars album is in my all-time top 10 little long 80s dude. I mean, I'm not going to lie about it. But that I could of... I mean, it's for a debut album. I mean, it's not right for somebody to come out of the I mean, to me the two best debut albums ever maybe is that one and and probably John Prine his debut. Yeah for somebody not to have a single bad note. But we're getting off track here, man. I'm sorry. <laughs> go go ahead and rank your eighth favorite uh 80s rock and roll album for me now, Sean. All right, so I
1: guess you know we're going to go from The Smiths to another dark album. Uh, uh so from 1986 we got Black Celebration by Depeche Mode. Awesome. Okay. Uh talk about that for a minute. But I kind of was, you know, hesitant to include this until we finally decided we're just including all kinds of rock because, you know, I've always associated the Pesh Mode in the past as more of an electronic band, but then thinking more and more about them and subsequent albums like Music for the Masses, Violator and so on. Oh yeah, Violator's it, fantastic album. Right. And they're all more like post punk and industrial rock. I mean, you even look at this album, Black Celebration. Uh Trent Reznor from Nine Inch Nails. He said that this album and even the tour behind this
0: album is what inspired
1: him to make Pretty Hate Machine.
0: Oh, I didn't know that, man. That's, that's pretty cool. But I, now that you mention that, I can hear it, dude. Oh, yeah. <laughs>
1: and, I mean, their influence goes even further than just Nine Inch Nails. I mean, just really industrial rock and industrial metal as a whole. Like, even Rammstein, they covered uh, the song Stripped. For a Depeche Mode covers album, and all the members of the group loved that version of that song. Like they highly praised it. Hmm. And I mean, for me, just like listening to this album, I actually listened to it earlier while I was at work. You know, it's just like a really good, like forty-one minute journey through some of Depeche Mode's finest work.
0: Yeah, I'd I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up you know the keyboardist i think his name was andy fletcher yes that passed away last year because i mean you know a lot of times if you know a band has keys it's not necessarily that prominent in the sound but but the patch mode the keys on this album and pretty much anything i've listened to them from are, are a big part of their sound dude and, and I, I guess he was probably a founding member too wasn't he he
1: was yeah him yeah. Uh, martin gore dave gallion yeah i they actually, uh, they're supposed to have an album coming out this year. Um, that was recorded between 2019 and up to, yeah, I guess, this month.
0: Nice, nice. Yeah, man, forward- this is another good pick, and I, I love that. You know, we, we, we stated from the outset that we'd be pretty loose with rock and roll, and my, I mean, <laughs> we've got. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we've got heavy metal on here. We've got the Smiths on here. We, uh, Like you said, the pitch mode, which is kind of, it, it's definitely rock and roll, don't get me wrong, but like a little bit of electronics. Mm-hmm. So we're we're all, but that's what rock and roll is, dude. I mean, it's not necessarily just an electric guitar and somebody just welling on it. Although, it, you know, that's a big part of it. I'm glad we're, we've been all over the map so far. And uh, it's funny because I think that we've picking a lot of uh, artists from England so far between the two of us, man. Yeah, I was looking uh, deeper into my list, and
1: I got a lot of bands from over the pond. So yeah,
0: yeah, it's, and the British Invasion was in the '60s, but I mean, come to think of it, here they had a strong presence in the '80s. Here, man, at least so far on my list and yours. Oh yeah. So for my number eight, I have an album from 1985 from Dire Straits called "Brothers in Arms." Love that is- album. Yeah, which is far and away, in my opinion, their best album. And they've got some other really good albums, too. Don't get me wrong, especially, uh, you know, some of the earlier work. But this one, man, was on another level. And like I mentioned with Cindy Lauper, they were specifically with their song. Money for Nothing was one of the bigger early stars of MTV. It's it's a computer animated video, which by today's standards is laughable. But at the time it was cutting edge. <laughs> it's one of the greatest videos ever. I'll, I'll i I love it. And it literally looks like Minecraft now though. If you if, if I compare it to anything in this day and age, because the like the, the, the people on there and the dog are all like square faced, kind of like the yeah. Minecraft characters and whatnot. <laughs> but but man, that song, uh Walk Alive, the title track Brothers in Arms. Uh um my personal favorite on the album is So Far Away. I love Which that is, one.
1: That guitar riff is yeah. so keen and, yes. yeah.
0: and it's so good, man. And you had you know, Martin Offler, John uh guy I can't I'll get to name them all, but and probably butcher their name, so I'll not try that. But uh you just mentioned that you really like this album, so I'll, I'll give you a chance to to maybe give your thoughts on it real briefly before we move on.
1: Yeah, I mean I'm a huge Dire Straits fan. I mean I I play guitar, so Martin Offler is one of my main influences so i've done deep dives into a lot of the catalog you know love over gold um, making movies their debut but i mean this one is it's just so solid in and out i mean the balladry on a song like why worry oh yeah just, yeah and then you know like you said so far away and then walk of life to me i guess it's the music video every time i hear that song i think a baseball season
0: yeah yeah they play that a lot of games still today, you know, almost 40 years later. But man, yeah, that song never, never fails to make me happy either when I hear it for some reason. I don't know, man. It's just uh, so catchy. Yeah. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention uh, one of my favorite Kentucky artists, Justin Wells, on his album, The Dogs. He does a killer, killer cover of So Far Away, in which he strips it down almost to like a blues song. Uh, are you familiar with his version yes yeah, yeah so i would highly recommend people check out that cover and if you've never listened to dire straits i don't know a better place to start than brothers in arms and if you've never listened to dire straits i don't even know why you're listening to my podcast to be honest with you <laughs> so uh my friend what do you have at number seven on your
1: list all right, so at number seven, I'm keeping it dark. We're going uh, to
0: 1989 with Disintegration by The Cure. Ooh, nice. They they had, <clears throat> excuse me, I think we talked a while ago how I limited myself one album per artist, but to be honest, there's probably three Cure albums that you very well could have picked from, man, and this is definitely one of them. Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah, I, I kind of looked at um, Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me, and I was just like, you know, it, did lean a little bit more towards pop and I do like darker more goth rock sounds most of the time anyway I don't know what it is that draws me in I don't know if it's just the like darkness just feels so tough I don't know it's kind of weird to explain but you know with Kiss Me Kiss Me Kiss Me, Kiss me leaning on pop Robert Smith saw the band being labeled as a pop group and he uh-huh. did more labeled as a pop star and so he just took the direction did a complete 180 on it and just went as dark as he could Mm -hmm. album and yet they were still able to use like that pop format of you know catchy hooks and straight to the point verses to create some pretty like dark major hits like lullaby and love song oh yeah pictures of you i mean they really killed it and my all-time favorite bass riff from the 80s is fascination street that beginning love yeah. that
0: mm, yes um you know this album the cure as a whole and this album specifically billy corgan's mentioned a bunch of times on how how, how big of an influence the cure in this album was on him and and you know Smash the pumpkins music and then If you've never listened to The Cure, but have the, and you've never listened to Smashing Pumpkins, which surely the God, there's no one out there that's never listened to either one of them. If you play kind of like a, you know, uh, a double feature movie that uh, you can hear the influences just bleeding out specifically into the Pumpkins album Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness, I think on a lot of the songs on here. Oh, big time. Yeah. I think there's a nine-minute song on here that that I really like, and God help me, man, is it like the, the same deep water as you? Yes, that's it. Yeah, yep. I, it's a journey. I mean, it's almost a ten-minute song. Best I can remember.
1: It's <laughs> really good though. That one. yeah, I love that one. Plain songs, really great opening to the album. I mean, it's just top to bottom. Yep, salt.
0: Great pick, man. Great pick, and uh, the Cure is another one of these. uh, artist that my daughter really likes uh she's a big fan of i guess 1980s uh english rock and roll even though it was 30 years before her time (laughs) so uh my number seven is from 1980 it's called remaining light by the talking heads uh which is by far my favorite talking heads album uh obviously you have uh david byrne which is probably the most famous member of the talking heads uh on you know vocals jerry harrison and a husband and wife combo of chris france and tina way now this is not an album that doesn't necessarily have big singles but it is an album that is meant it's not necessarily a concept album but it's one to be fully appreciated needs to be just played from beginning to end uh and I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that the keyboardist that I just mentioned, Chris France, grew up in Kentucky. And he and Tina, which is also a member of the Talking Heads, got married in Mason County, Kentucky back in the 80s and are still married today.
1: Yeah. yeah and Tina's, you know, I, I like to play bass too. And Tina, she's got some bass that, you know, I'd warm up with, you know, especially – you know psycho killer probably most iconic oh
0: yes oh yeah yeah i didn't know you played bass man that's pretty cool my uh, got my uh, i know i brought her up on the show but my daughter has, has just over the past few months uh, started playing bass oh, and uh cool. so i've really enjoyed the, the greatest pleasure in me is that when she fi- after you know practicing for a few weeks she got good enough or she was started playing like songs I recognize and I could recognize them immediately from the bass riff that she was playing upstairs. And that just made me so happy. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, uh, let's go ahead and each of us, uh, you first do our six favorite 1980s rock and roll album. And we'll take a real quick break and come back to our top five. So this is the last one that just could not quite, uh, you know, break into your five favorites, but obviously it's one that you really like a lot. Slap dab in the middle with your top 10 here. What do you have at number six, Sean? All
1: right. So from 1985, we got Once Upon a Time by Simple Minds.
0: Oh, okay. Let's,
1: let's hear about it. So surprisingly, you know, when people think of Simple Minds, they automatically think, don't you forget about me. However,
0: yeah. yep.
1: when this album came out, that song wasn't on there. It wasn't until the deluxe version of the album came out that it was actually on this album. So this uh, album does not have their biggest hit contrary to popular belief however i do believe that altogether this album didn't even need that song to help boost it i mean the hits that came off of it alone all the things she said alive and kicking and i think even jungle land was released as a single i mean all of those songs are solid in their own right you know unfortunately they weren't huge hits by any means but you know, listening to this album, you know, especially the way that they curated it, you know, and I think that that was Jimmy Iovine, another one of the greatest producers, music men in the industry ever. You know, the way that everything was brought together, it honestly just makes a really good summer album. Mm. I, best way for me to describe it. You know, I used to, you know, whenever I was living with my parents, they had a pool, and every summer when I went down to go clean it, I'll just throw this album on
0: and just have fun while I was doing it. So, yeah, this is a great pick, man. Uh, I'm, I'm so glad we're doing this episode because you've mentioned a couple albums, this one and, you know, your 10th t- your one, your 10th favorite album there that you that you talked about a while ago. Uh, oh, Electric. Or, yeah, two that I'm definitely going to have to deep. You know, that I've really never probably given the attention that they deserved and I'm definitely going to after you know, we get done recording this episode. So you've educated me a little bit, man. And my wife, <laughs> she gives me a hard time. She tries to act, tell me that I act like I know everything about music. But you've come with some knowledge I didn't know already, dude. And we ain't even to the top five yet. I appreciate it. <laughs> so. At the Smiths. So. We're <laughs> doing <it right> there. <laughs> so my number six album is. Man, I could. It could have very well been my number one. uh, But yet yeah, it ain't. But it is, to me, a masterpiece. It's Full Moon Fever by Tom Petty that came out in 89. I almost
1: had that in my top ten.
0: Yeah, I mean, man. And this was this was kind of his first quote-unquote solo album that he did without, you know, the entirety of the Heartbreakers. Although a yeah. couple of them did play a little bit, I think, on this album. But it's technically a Tom oh, Petty solo Lynch. album. Yeah. And, <laughs> and he come out of the gate, man, with... I won't back down, running down a dream. You're so bad, free falling. I mean, gee, oh I mean, most most musicians would be satisfied if they just had those four songs over like a twenty year career, and, and bam, he had them on one album, dude. Uh, my favorite and and a deep cut on this album, which I think is the closing track, is called "Zombie Zoo." It's one I like to fire up around Halloween sometimes. It's a, fun, a little a fun little song. But my favorite part of this whole album, man, and I think it's still even in the digital copies that you can just download off iTunes, he literally comes on and says, hey, CD listeners, this is the point in the, in the album in which our LP listeners and cassette listeners have to turn over the album to side B. And, <laughs> and I always found that amusing in someone who, especially over the last 15, 20 years, who primarily loves to listen to music on vinyl, I've always I've always appreciated that. But you just mentioned that you almost had this one ranked, so obviously you appreciate it too. So feel free to talk about it for a couple minutes here before we take a break, Sean.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, like I've talked about playing guitar, you know, part of the reason why I almost had the Cars debut album and part of the reason why I almost had this one was because these are like the only two albums that I could probably play every single song on guitar. Like, it's just... I don't know it is that drew me into it. If it was just growing up around it and, you know, just getting super heavy into it that I could just go word for word with it. You know, I mean, just Tom Petty in general, every single song that he's ever wrote lyrically I've related to it at some point. And that's hard for a songwriter to do for me. So, you know, I have huge deep respect for Tom Petty and especially – Mike Campbell as well. One of the most underrated guitarists of all time.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: And did you ever get a chance
0: to see uh, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers live? I unfortunately did not. Yeah. I got to see him at Rip Arena back in the day when I was in college. And I can tell you that it was, it was spectacular, man. And to get, uh, since you know, I, I'd be remiss if they had, a, they released a live album last year called Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers live at the Fillmore. And, they do like a lot of covers on it of like old, uh, early rock and roll songs, and, and 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 if you read in the liner note, liner notes, Tom Petty said that every song that they covered, and it was over like a three night run, uh, in which they played three consecutive concerts with no repeats. Every song that they covered, uh, it was a heavy influence on him and the Heartbreakers as musicians. So I would highly recommend you check that out if you haven't already, man. It's called Tom Petty and the Live at the Fillmore. And there's like 80 songs on it, but it's killer. It's worth your time. Yeah, I'll have to check that one out. So we are going to take a brief break uh, and come straight back with the top five. Now, let me ask you, Sean, real quick before we take this break. what What was more difficult for you coming up with the 10 songs themselves or actually placing them 10 through one?
1: Uh, I mean, as far as, like, my top maybe four or five, that was easy. But then trying to organize everything after that, that was the biggest challenge. Yes, sir. And yes, sir. Having, having a few yeah. that I would probably consider to be honorable mentions. I mean, I mean, definitely would consider to be honorable mentions. But I had, you know, I, I know you've had guests on here before that come up with a list of, like, 25 or 50, and I was probably right in that same boat. <laughs>
0: yeah i think i started with like 20 20 some maybe 22 or three uh finally got it down to 10 like you i had a solid actually my top three is pretty solid now those three kind of fluctuated, which one was going to be one two and three but you know 10 through four i think i had about four or five different versions of this list before i finally settled on one dude but we'll take a brief break you're doing you're doing great man i'm really enjoying this and i can't wait to see what you've got in your top five dude and we'll find out here just in a minute or two Awesome. Hey, Brian, once again here to tell you about my good friends at The Goblin Trading Company. That's right, they are putting out new stuff almost daily shirts hoodies mugs not just exclusive that one show merchandise but all kinds of cool stuff they have a really new cool shirt for my D&D friends of a lich and if you'll just go to etsy type in the goblin train company you can see that shirt and all the other stuff they have a lot of you i've already bought some hoodies and t-shirts of that one show and i appreciate that keep on buying that stuff wearing it out, tagging myself or the Goblin Trading Company on social media and letting us see that cool shit that they are making because it is cool. And if you want to be cool, you will go ahead and get you a hoodie or T-shirt from the one and only Goblin Trading Company. If you don't know how to get there, in the show notes, I'll have a little link and all you got to do is click on that sucker and it'll take you right there to where you'll see all that awesome stuff I just talked about from the Goblin Trading Company. One. All right, we're back. That one show with Brian Coles. My guest today is Sean Clemens and he and I are talking music from the 1980s, specifically our 10 favorite rock albums of the 1980s. Now, uh, let's talk just real quick before we get into our top five, Sean. Uh, I'm in my 40s, so I, I literally grew up in the 80s, and but you're a little bit younger than me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, if you don't mind, how, how old are you? I am 26. So you wasn't even alive in the 80s? I was not so it's interesting that you you obviously know your stuff and you're obviously a big fan of of all music specifically i mean you i mean you've spoken glowingly on the five albums you've talked about already and i know you will in your top five so what exactly is it is it about somebody that didn't come of age with this because a lot of people i have nostalgia for the music that they came of age with and always look look back and maybe overvalue it a little but I may be doing some of that today, but that's not something you're doing. You're coming from a place in which you had to discover this stuff on your own, similar to my daughter did with the Smiths, something that was around before you were even born. So what is, right. it, what is it about 80s music as someone who obviously is younger than me and didn't grow up in the 1980s uh, that that you know that strikes a chord with you, man, overall?
1: Uh, for me, uh, I had young parents. Uh, they're both in their late 40s now and so growing up you know they were basically just out of high school when I was born so you know I was growing up on the stuff that they grew up on so all the yes, sir. 80s rock 80s rap 90s rap 90s rock you know so everything from ACDC to Alice in Chains from Beastie Boys to Snoop Dogg and Dr. Dre like it was all over the place, you know, and especially country music and you know, both of my parents really loved, you know, the seventies outlaws and, you know, all throughout the eighties with the Juds and Hank jr. Randy Travis uh-huh. and then, of course, through the nineties. Cause that's what, you know, was on the radio when they were around. So all of this stuff from seventies through nineties, that's what they played all the time. And then, you know, I started getting into some of the stuff that was coming out when I was growing up, but, I kept getting drawn back because there was that kind of feeling of, okay, this is what my parents were listening to in the car. And I really liked, you know, how that sounded. Yeah. And so I'm finding, you know, different sounds that I enjoyed. And I think that that's really what led me to just fall in love with music as a whole and really want to get into, you know, buying albums or playing instruments or whatever. And, you know, the A's and, 70s as far as rock goes and even the 90s you know it all has something for me as far as influence you know i talk about guitar and being influenced by mike campbell lindsey buckingham Mm -hmm. poplar angus young uh jerry cantrell you know just all over the map yes sir
0: awesome man uh so we're gonna go ahead and get into our top five here man Uh, At least according to me and you, these next albums are the five best rock and roll albums of the decade of 1980 to 1989. What do you have at number five?
1: All right. So from 1980, we have another one of my influences in his band. We have Van Halen with Women and Children First.
0: Awesome. All right.
1: Uh, Let's hear about it, brother. So with this one, you know, I kind of feel like, you know, Van Halen, there wasn't a whole lot of songs that had a lot of, depth to it from a songwriter's perspective like say a john prine or chris Christopherson type song but you know but damn was, they were they fun, show- they're
0: fun though oh yeah <laughs> i was gonna
1: say it's, they showcase like more of a mature party band if that makes yeah. sense yeah you know because i mean with this you know around the late 70s you had the height of disco but to counter that you had the height of punk and so there was a lot of punk influence on those early van halen albums and this one took that influence and coupled it with like some jazz blues and country influences along with the heavy metal coming up with bands like Judas Priest, Motörhead, Iron Maiden and so it just like created this really heavy hard rock album like it rides that fine line between rock and metal throughout this whole album i mean oh, yeah, there's, yeah. Songs that are chaotic, like Loss of Control, and then there's songs that are a little bit more, like, not really mellow, but just a nice rock anthem, like Everybody Wants Some or Take Your Whiskey Home. And then, you know, I talk about the jazz blues and country. You know, that's very evident on Could This Be Magic. Mm, yes. And that song... And, or maybe it's Women and Children First. It's one or the other. I can't remember which, or that is, says Women and Children First. So it is Could This Be Magic. All right, lost my train of thought there for a second. Uh, But anyway, this, you know, it's the only Van Halen song in their catalog to feature female vocals. Wow, I didn't know that. And they actually come from a country rock singer. It's uh, Nicolette Larson, who did stuff with Neil Young and Steve Warner.
0: Okay. And, you know, you mentioned that this had a little jazz influence and whatnot on it. And I'm if, I'm pretty sure that both the Van Halen brothers uh, were classically trained musicians before they even got into rock and roll. They were,
1: and I think a big part of that was their dad. Oh, yeah. His influence.
0: Yeah. Great pick, dude. And uh, not to be a spoiler, but it's very well may not be the last time we talk about Van Halen today. All right. uh, <laughs> so you mentioned earlier what a strong year 1987 was and i have another album from the year of 1987 here by a band from georgia called rem and this is our album document now it's hard to really put into words on what a you know the quote-unquote alternative music of the late 80s in the of the early 90s what an what an influence rem was for that whole movement, because they were one of the first breakout of, quote-unquote, college radio, which really found its way in the 1980s, and it's still something I like to listen to today, even though it's been many, many years since I've been in college, but, you know, generally college radio is cutting edge, it's playing artists that are up and coming, artists that you're not here on any other radio station. And at the time, in the 80s, that was R.E.M. And this was actually their first album that cracked the top 10. So it was really their breakout album as far as the mainstream is concerned. And, you know, obviously, uh, their their first big hit was off this album, too, the one I love. Uh, it's the end of the world, and I know it. Which, If you've never even listened to R.E.M., I guarantee you've heard that song in a movie or a commercial or a TV show. It's been used a lot in all forms of media. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a big, big... Uh, song to be playing as we neared y2k back in the day is 1999 was ending and <laughs> that 1999 the prince but man rem is a band uh that i fell in love with when i was in high school back in the 90s uh when i got into grunge and alternative music i started seeking out bands that those folks were mentioning that influenced them and a lot of those artists mentioned rem and other. Uh, You know various interviews, so I said, "Hey, I've got to check out this REM." And for people that's like you (laughs) and younger, that was hard to do back in the day, dude. You had to actually seek these things, these CDs and and cassettes out, and pop fifteen to twenty bucks down at a pop on on albums that you maybe just heard one or two songs from. But I never regretted any REM album that I bought. And as far as their '80s output goes, this document is by far my favorite it's a good choice so let's move on to number four now sean what do you have for us
1: all right so number four from 1988 Mm -hmm. we have my favorite metallica album and probably my favorite 80s metal album Mm -hmm. with justice for
0: all all right and you know like we mentioned about the i think it was the cure earlier metallica uh you could have just picked any of their 80s albums and they would have been very much at place on this list, man. So talk about uh, talk about this particular one. Why it is the Metallic album that you chose, man?
1: Uh, I mean, for me, you know, when I was a kid, another part of the reason why I got so heavy into 80s rock and metal and everything was uh, VH1 Classic actually used to be a channel that I always – on tv just because you know they're playing stuff on the radio that my mom and dad were listening to and you know how old actually, that
0: makes me it, feel dude. <laughs> it was called classic
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah come on man. <laughs> but anyway you know one um the song one was oh, yeah. a video they played a lot and the video like kind of shocked me at first as a kid but then the song itself was like oh, heck yeah, this is awesome. And, you know, then I got to looking more into Metallic and everything, you know, recognized all the stuff from the Black album, Load, Reload, all that. But I just kept coming back to one. And so then eventually, I will never forget, there's one day I got my dad's truck and he threw this album on. And I didn't realize that this was the album that that song was on, but it was just heavy metal greatness from the beginning up until I got to the point where one came on. I was just like, I love this album and so i like reached over and turned over to the volume knob and actually turned it up when it got to that point so just having those memories and you know just really digging the overall sounds you know despite the lack of bass as you know everybody says you know that uh jason newstead was kind of the proverbial punching bag on the album you know like even without that bass you know the lyrics you know, the band was just a little bit more matured and instrumentally speaking, everybody was just a little bit more in sync. It's it just perfect. And two little notes, or another little note, not one, sorry, or two, sorry. Um One of the notes that I wrote down, I had from the 1989 Grammys, it actually lost the oh, know what rock, say. metal, performance, vocal, or instrumental to Jethro Toll. <laughs>
0: Which this is absurd.
1: <laughs> I could then put Grammy Award losers stickers on the rest of the Justice yeah. for All. <laughs> uh,
0: and Jethro Tom is good in their own right, but they are not metal. <laughs> no. I'll crank up Aqualung all day, every day, but that's not nah. <laughs> A couple of, uh, songs on this album I like the, the lead track Blackened yes uh, killer way to start an album and they actually have their own brand of whiskey that's called blackened for those that enjoy whiskey <laughs> uh and uh i the beholder i really like that song too
1: great ends of sanity yeah.
0: Song. Oh, yeah but this is a this is an awesome pick man and uh one that i that i'm very glad you included so we could talk about it uh and you know like i just said we could have there's probably three metallic albums that we very well could have uh had on this list and none of them, none of them would have been wrong. So you mentioned Van Halen a little while ago and I have them at my number four, but it's their album 1984 that obviously came out in 1984. But I mean, this was, you know, as far as commercial success, their biggest album, I would say, uh, Mm -hmm. you've got, you know, jump Panama hop teacher, which is three of their biggest hits that they've ever done. This was the last album that they did with David Lee Roth for the longest, longest time, um, and obviously they replaced him with Sammy Hagar, and they're probably one of the very few bands that ever replaced a lead singer and continued at or near the same level of success that they did. So that's just a testament to, to me, Eddie's genius as a guitar player. Quick uh, question: Feel about Van Hagar? Well, the thing is, I have I'm a huge Van Halen fan. I've seen David Lee Roth and Sammy Hagar both solo live, and I've seen Van Halen with David Lee Roth and Sammy Hagar live. Now there's no argument for me that as far as vocals go, Sammy Hagar is the better singer, but there's just something magical with the original classic lineup of Van Halen, which includes both Michael Anthony and David Lee Roth. You know, Michael Anthony to me doesn't get a lot of a lot of credit. The back the, you know, the harmonies almost on on their first four albums, that's Michael Anthony singing. Because Dave Lee Roth is not the greatest singer. He's a great showman and a great frontman, but he's just okay singer in my opinion. So they really leaned on Michael Anthony to help supplement a lot of those vocals on those albums. Uh, Which one do you prefer? Hager or David Lee?
1: I prefer Roth, but as far as, like you said, as far as the sound of the vocals goes, definitely Hagar. And, yeah, I'm glad you touched on Michael Anthony, because that was, you know, I never realized, as a kid, I never realized that that was him until I listened to, like, those Chicken Foot albums with Joe yep. Satcher, Chad Smith, and Hagar, and Michael oh, Anthony. Yeah. You know, I heard that, and I was just like, this just sounds like another Van Halen album.
0: hmm Yeah, I don't think he gets near the credit that he deserves, because he you know david lee roth was a personality larger than life eddie is one of the greatest guitarists of all times when people talk about you know the greatness of van halen michael anthony really kind of gets left to the wayside and that is a shame and he had one of the greatest uh bases of all time that was literally a giant whiskey bottle i think it was jack daniels (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah so, yeah, I mean, 1984, and I think this is the first artist in which has had two albums on our list, correct?
1: Van Halen. So, was...
0: so uh, that's awesome, man. We'll move on to number three. What's your third favorite rock album of the 80s? All right.
1: So from 1980, you know, I said earlier, I'm probably going to talk about ACDC quite a bit, and sure mm-hmm. enough, we have Back in Black.
0: Has, has to be on here, Right. <laughs> right.
1: Yeah, I mean, if we we did
0: this entire episode and neither one of us had Back in Black on it, I would have probably got some hate mail.
1: (laughs) I mean, I was honestly kind of torn between that and, you know, I'm just so into a lot of, you know, a lot of deeper cuts and stuff on their albums. You know, I feel like Flick of the Switch is very close second to this one as far as their 80s output. But I had to get Back in Black on there. You know, it's... More my nostalgia pick, I guess, than anything else. You know, with this album and Highway to Hell, you know, I like I said, having younger parents grew up on it. I knew Angus Young's name when I was three years old. I actually had like a little toy guitar and my parents had uh, ACDC Live in Paris on VHS tape and mm. I'd play with it with my toy guitar. My mom's got like videos and pictures of that, but awesome. I mean, you know, I mean, this is just their most commercially successful album it's actually spawned their only top 40 hit with shook me all night long but i mean it's just i see it as their phoenix album you know it was in the wake of losing bond scott and what better way to honor him with this you know and classic rock radio still honors not only the band and bond but you know just their legacy today by playing every single song off this album on the radio still
0: absolutely and you know i just mentioned van halen is one of the few bands that was able to keep a certain level of success with a different lead singer obviously acdc under different circumstances because you know bon scott tragically died at a young age and they they either quit or continue on with a new lead singer and you know uh good god almighty what what a voice man what i mean It's unbelievable to me that they could find someone with that type of powerful voice to come in and not miss a beat after Bon Scott died. Yeah. And oddly enough, it was actually at Bon
1: Scott's recommendation. Oh yeah. I didn't know that. He, I mean, it wasn't necessarily him saying, Hey, put him in the band after I die, but it was, you know, he actually kind of discovered Bon or Brian because Brian actually used to be a roadie for the band.
0: Wow. Okay, I did not know that. I mean, you're coming with the knowledge today, man. Good. Uh, good. <laughs> Dixie's going to give me a hard time when she listens to this episode. She's going to say, hey, you you finally found someone that knows more about music than you. <laughs> okay, since I'm on the topic of Brian,
1: I'll leave you with one more nugget for Brian. The a, Okay. The Rising Sun, mm-hmm. you, a version done by a band called Jordy, which is Brian Johnson's band before he joined ACDC. That version is amazing. Like, it is,
0: it almost sounds like a Nazareth song. Well, I'm going to have to check that out real quick since we get done recording. I didn't even know that existed, but there's so many versions of that song that I like, and that's one I've never heard. Yeah, so I'm I'm very interested in hearing it and, and his take on it. Good yeah. pick, dude. Uh, if on I, four, I, you know, knowing enough about you that I do just from, you know, our back and forth from texting and, and from what, you put out on social media i'm kind of shocked that this wasn't your number one to be honest with you but we'll get to your number one soon all righty <laughs> so my number three is another one from 1987 i mean i think it's this is several from that year that, w- that you and i have put on our list and oh, yeah. it is a and it is guns and roses appetite for destruction yes which from, for my money is just one of the best pure rock and roll albums of all time unbelievable for a debut album we talked earlier about debut albums and some good ones this one is right up there with the greatest debut albums of all time uh you know you Axel Rose slash Easy Stradling Duff McKagan Stephen Adler they this and if you just read anything about them as a band they were literally all in a flea infested like one room apartment living together on the floor just pure this nastiness and dirtiness It went into the making of this album. Uh, Such a classic, man. I mean, just pick a song on there, and you could say any any other band would kill to have that uh, and would probably be like, at 95% of the bands out there, the best songs they ever put. Welcome to the Jungle, It's So Easy, Night Train, Paradise City, My Michelle, obviously Sweet Child of Mine. I, I mean, my dad played this a lot when I was young. When he first came out, he would take me to work every morning. And it's one of the first albums that I remember making me truly fall in love with rock and roll. It was this, and you mentioned earlier, the Cars debut. Those were two in heavy rotation in my dad's old truck, on those morning commutes. I mean, we could talk for the whole hour, I think, on the greatness of this album, but obviously we won't. I know you have some thoughts on Appetite, man. Uh, What do you think about it?
1: Well, I mean, like you said, it's just so important because, you know, even though you had Electric by The Cult come out and it had a few pretty decent mainstream rock hits, Permanent Vacation by Aerosmith had some mainstream rock hits, this album actually kind of took over MTV with songs like Welcome to the Jungle. And Absolutely. I think it masses masses, that like 70s and 80s sound that rock was missing.
0: And, and, uh, and you know, a lot of people remember that, you know, nirvana never mind and you know the grunge movie kind of kill quote-unquote hair metal the poisons of the world and things of that nature i think that the first shot to those to that quote-unquote genre of hair metal was this album
1: oh yeah and see like with this album you know we talked about metallica earlier um you know right after injustice for all they had the black album and really oh, yeah. if it wasn't for appetite the black album probably wouldn't have sounded the way it did because yeah. they heard and they went to their producers and they're like hey we want an album that sounds like that
0: yeah and i'd be remiss and, and 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 from my more sensitive listeners i apologize ahead of time you were talking earlier about i think it was judas priest that were literally doing stuff in the studio like breaking things to get sound effects yeah they wanted the sound effect of a, of of a woman having sex so Axel literally had sex with a woman in the studio <laughs> <Steve>. <laughs> When they were making Appetite for Destruction, now I mean, if that's not rock and roll, man, I don't know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> so let's uh, let's move on, man. We got two a piece left, uh, four albums to talk about. What's your number two?
1: All right, so number two from 1980. You know, I'm we haven't talked about him yet, and so I feel like you know, after I talk about him, knowing your background, you're probably going to talk about him. Yep, we have Bruce Springsteen with the River. Oh.
0: I'm so happy you picked this album, man. Talk about it for a minute.
1: So it is my favorite Springsteen album in general. I actually own two copies on vinyl. Mm. I mean, it has songs for every mood. You know, you know, talking about vinyl, side one on its own could be a masterpiece. Side two could be a masterpiece. Side
0: three, side four. I mean I love it how on the especially, you know, you when you listen to this on vinyl, it's almost like Four different albums, side A, Every- B, C, and D. The The mood of, of each side, not just each disc, but actually each side. But continue on. It is. And, you know,
1: see, like uh, we had talked about before the podcast, you know, we were talking about a few different albums and, you know, I had mentioned Nebraska and that's one that I would have included on this list, but as much as I love story songs and some of my favorite albums are more concept related. I actually prefer more songs I can relate to, which is why, you know, like I was talking about earlier, Tom Petty. You know, I love Tom Petty so much. And, you know, I look back on this past year when I made my top songs of 2022, I had the song Sad Bird Still Sings by Tim Gooden just because of how much I could relate to what he was saying there in that song. And so with this album, uh, The River, like just about every song on there, it's easy to relate to. And, you know, it's a testament to Bruce Springsteen's, you know, being the voice for the working class citizen. And, you know, that's what I like to consider myself. And so, you know, just having all these different songs like Crush on You or um, Prove It All Night and all these different others that just, you know, it like brings out different emotions in me that. Right? Some songs just can't really do, but oh, yeah. this album, like I said, you know, it's got that song for every mood, and it does yeah. it.
0: Yeah, uh, I was listening to uh, Out in the Street on my way to work this morning. Yes, uh, I mean, just pick a song on this album, man. Uh, we didn't even mention Hungry Heart, which is probably like the quote unquote hit from the album as far as radio oh, yeah. goes. <laughs> man, uh, Cal-
1: actually, are on the radio a few times.
0: Yeah, I mean, God almighty. Uh, You know, he he toured, he and the East Street Band toured a few years ago and uh, played two sets, and the first set was this album, Front to Back in Order, man. And They'd done it in Louisville, and I'm still kicking myself for not going to that show, dude, because this album is so good. And like you said, and we've mentioned several artists that had, you know, more than one album that we could choose to represent them and their 1980s output so happy you picked this one because it's going to give us a chance to talk about two Springsteen albums. Yes, sir. And and you, you know, you mentioned Nebraska. The only reason why I didn't put, you know, choose it is because I did a whole episode on on Nebraska last year. Nobody has listened to that yet. Feel free to go back and listen to it. I I talk about every song on Nebraska. It's my personal favorite Springsteen album ever. Uh, It's, you know, it just connects with me just a tad more soul than the river and my number two album, which is born in the USA. Now this is about far and away his biggest commercial success. This is what catapulted him to a mega star. I mean, this album had seven top 10 hits on it, man, which is crazy at the time. I mean, that's like well over half the songs in the album charted in the top 10 <laughs> and there, for this, for Born in the USA, to me, there's not a missed note on it. The songs are all just perfectly chosen and sequenced in an order in which is just the whole album is one that you can just hit play on and there's not going to be one miss note, one missed word, uh, vocal performance. The craziest thing to me is they had this album done and Dancing in the Dark was not on it. In fact, it didn't even exist. And the, the the producer of the album looked at Bruce Springsteen and said, man, there's not a hit on this album. We're not putting this out. The record company's going to put this album out until you write a hit to put on here. And he wrote Dancing in the Dark in like three hours and slapped it on there at the last minute. <laughs> I mean, and it's probably the you know one of the two or three biggest songs on the album as far as you know being known to the masses goes. But I mean, who writes Dancing in the Dark in an hour?
1: And to think if it wasn't for that one hour, we probably wouldn't have had the success that friends
0: had. Oh, <laughs> Courtney, the yeah. uh, she's Courtney Cox is in the video <laughs> dancing with Bruce on stage. Yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> but man, I know you're a fan of Green Sting and you just talked about the river, but do you have any thoughts about Born in the USA before we move on to our number ones? Oh, it's a perfect road trip album. Oh, that's exactly, exactly. Darlington County. I Yes. Mean, <laughs> going exactly.
1: down. yes. I mentioned that we actually, uh, my family and I, we took a trip out to Outer Banks a few years ago and we did like a drive in one of those like underwater tunnels or whatever in Virginia. And uh, as we went down, I started playing, I'm going down. <laughs> Bruce Springsteen uh, and-
0: yes. Yes. So what did you think about uh, the Outer Banks? It was beautiful. It yeah. Was awesome. it, uh, we vacationed there a few years ago and. And I loved it, man. I mean, it just, and it was a beach that, you know, you're not going to be elbow to elbow with people. You can just get out there and kind of have your own way with things. Uh, but man, back to Born in the USA, like you said, you picked the river. I picked this. Both very well, you know, could have not just been in my top 10, but could have very well been my number one. They're two of my three favorite Springsteen albums ever. But we've each got one left, man. But before we get into our number ones, give me two quick honorable mentions.
1: So Two quick honorable mentions. So I've already talked about two that you had that I had. So we'll go to two others here. Um, So first honorable mention, we have Kick by NXS. Okay, good. Good. How about the second one? Uh, Second, I'm torn between two different ones, but I'm going to go with uh, Signals by Rush.
0: Nice man, I wanted to put Rush on here so bad. <laughs> I just, I don't, and since I'm glad you at least mentioned them, so we, I don't, you know, I know I got some followers of the show that are really big Rush fans, and they're going to give me a hard time that, that we didn't end <laughs> up ranking them. But, you know, you've been, I'm going to let you actually talk about your number one to close the show because there's a song on there that we're going of your choosing, that we'll close the show out with. But my number one is from 1989. It's Pixies with Doolittle. I picked this for two reasons. Number one, it is one of my all-time favorite albums. And number two, to me, it may be the most important album we talk about today just because I honestly believe, you know, I really come of age in the, in the early 90s when grunge broke. And we talked earlier about whatever was big when, you know, when you were in middle and high school. is probably your favorite music of all time if you listen to anybody, especially Nirvana and Kurt Cobain, talk ad nauseum about how big of an influence the Pixies, and specifically Doolittle, had on them, they may not have been, quote-unquote, grunge without Pixies, even though they weren't from Seattle, they were from Boston. But if you just listen to any of their albums, especially this one, you can see that it really laid the groundwork, man, and paved the way for the revolution that, that Nevermind really kicked the door down just a couple, two, three years later. But, you know, the lead singer, Black Francis, my favorite bass player, I'm bass player of all time, Kim Deal. I had such a crush on her in high school, man. I mean, here you had this little tiny teat lady just laying down some of the gnarliest bass licks that's ever been heard. I mean, bold? yes, and she has her own band, The Breeders, by the way, that yeah. is really good, too. Yeah, and she sings on some of the songs, but it's like Gigantic. That's her. But man, uh, you know, Monkey Goes to Heaven. Uh, you know, they're hit, they quote unquote hit, Here Comes Your Man. It's probably like not you know, anything else they've ever done. I think it was almost like tongue in cheek that you want you want a poppy song, well, here's your one, but it it's a damn good. <laughs> D Baser, wave of mutilation. This album, man, is so important and so influential to the stuff. You know, like our R.E.M. that I talked about earlier, Pixies is a band that I suck at. You know, uh, I actually intentionally looked up and listened to that I had not heard of until I heard the Cobains and the Vedders of the world talk about how good they were and how much they had influenced them.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, for me, I, I need to get more into the Pixies because as far as that album, I think Here Comes Your Man's the only one I know. But outside of that, one that we probably could have mentioned earlier that I actually thought about putting in my top ten was uh, Surfer Rosa.
0: Oh, yeah. I, yeah, and I went back and forth. Either one of them I could have ranked. I love both of them dearly. I will say that Surfer Rosa, uh, if you've got, you know, little kids in the house and you buy that album, you may want to hide it because the cover is <laughs> a little risque. <laughs> a little shit. but uh but that's mine man and as far as my honorable mentions goes only reason why i don't have joshua tree on here is because just a couple of weeks ago i did a whole episode on youtube and talked at length about that album otherwise it definitely be in my top 10 uh and uh that's pretty much for my only honorable mention before i forget and before we talk about your number one album rock album of the 80s Sean, it's been a pleasure, dude. Uh, I've had a bunch of people come on this show. You're by far one of the most knowledgeable and one of the most prepared guests I've ever had. (laughs) You've you've introduced me to some stuff that I didn't even know existed, like this cover of uh, (laughs) House of the Rising Sun that I'm definitely going to listen to when we get off here. But without further ado, dude, let's go ahead and introduce and announce your number one favorite rock and roll album of the 1980s. All right, so my number one is from 1984. Yep.
1: It is Purple Rain by Prince and the Revolution. Fantastic choice. Yeah, I mean, this is an album that, you know, I mentioned The Wall earlier. Between this album and The Wall, I kind of go back and forth on those. It's like my all-time favorite album. Uh, I mean, with Purple Rain, you know, you you can play it at a party. You can play it on a road trip. You can play it while you're at work. You can play it while you're studying and just so on and so forth. I mean, it's just really, it's orchestrated beautifully. And I'm not sure if the album itself was meant to be a concept album. I know it does kind of go hand in hand with the movie. And, you know, when you listen to just the album itself, you know, you really get this love story that's centered on like a fame and rags to riches kind of story and scent. And And you can go on.
0: Well, I was going to say, I'm glad you mentioned the movie. I actually had never seen it until last year, and it's was really good. Yes. Uh, yeah, love- and Prince should have made more movies. I think he did one more called Graffiti Bridge or something like that. That's kind of a quasi-sequel to Purple Rain, but continue on.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, this is, you know, I talked about earlier, you know, different nostalgia picks and, you know, growing up listening to my parents' music. This is actually one that I technically discovered on my own. <laughs> Um, my parents they let me have access to their CD collection at a very young age, so I was probably about six years old. I think I was in first grade, so yeah, I was about six years old when I was going through, and you know, I found like a few different things, like some old Waylon Jennings and some old uh, like Cinderella and Guns and Roses and stuff. But then, oh, I what caught my eye was Purple Rain, and I saw the album cover. I was just like this. Looks pretty cool. I'll have to check it out. And my mom would always let me kind of like pick a CD to listen to for about a week or two in the car. Like whenever we'd go out and run any errands or whatever. So I popped this one in and I was hooked from the first song. And I didn't realize that this was an album that my parents liked because it wasn't really one that at the time I had grown up with them listening to. And, you know, just seeing the effect that it has on not only them but or myself but i mean just the masses you know seeing the impact that prince had in this whole album had is just
0: huge yeah man and 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 prince i mean a lot of people just just casual music fans don't realize what a great guitarist he was man
1: oh insanely good uh, I mean for the longest time, um, the ending solo on Let's Go Crazy used to be my all-time favorite solo when I was a yep. kid.
0: Yep, I, and if it, nobody's ever watched it, just look up Prince Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and you'll get a video on YouTube of him, like him and Petty and like, like nine or ten like legends are on stage and they're doing When My Guitar Gently Weeps, and George Harrison song. And Prince starts soloing, and it is one of the greatest things I've ever heard or seen in my entire life. And I'd be remiss if, you know, he has one of, my opinion, my favorite and best Super Bowl halftime performances ever was Prince. And you couldn't have scripted it better. He starts to open in cords of purple rain, and literally the heavens open up, and it starts pouring the rain, and it is just so magical and poetic. And this is a great pick um it was one that barely barely missed out in my top 10 and i was kicking myself for not picking it but you've kind of saved my reputation a little bit as far as this show goes by picking it as your number one and let us talk about it man oh yeah so yeah. yeah and we've got about a minute left once again i thank you so much man and you could there you could pick any song off this album that you'd want to play us out today but what song do you have uh, for us today Sean from Purple Rain
1: I feel like you probably already know I mean we can't close out anything without the album's closer we have
0: the song Purple Rain by good, Prince Under- good deal thanks again man and this will not be your only appearance on this show it's been a pleasure I definitely want you back down the road uh, yes. I'll and uh, once again it's been Sean Clemens you can check out his podcast uh, Chasing That Song on uh, Spotify, correct? Yeah. Chase, and, that song. yeah, chase that song. And this is Prince with Purple Rain. Thank you all for listening. You, you. you say you want to lead us, but you can't seem to make up your mind. i figure that out. That one show is brought to you by The Goblin Trading Company and is written, produced, and recorded by me, Brian Combs, most of the time right on my kitchen table. If you enjoy this show, please share it with someone who you think may enjoy it as well and check me out on social media, on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. As always, thanks for listening, and we will see you next week.